Let us pray. Heavenly Father, show us joy. In Jesus' name, amen. The prophet Isaiah and John the baptizer for the second week in a row collide in the most wondrous of ways. I don't spend a lot of time on existentialism or existentialist thinking. Now, existentialism is the study of why we exist. It's that whole finding myself thing. Ah, philosophy gives me a headache, which is why I prefer the prophet Isaiah who says today, The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Oh, and the day of our God's vengeance. To comfort those who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. I know it's a mouthful, but it actually solves our existential problem. You see, we know why we're here, because God told us. During Advent, our journey turns from why am I here to how can I do what God put me here to do, which is actually harder, especially when we try to balance our physical life with our spiritual life. Your calling as a child of God is more than just going to church. Even if you volunteer on work days or as a reader or an elder, you see, your calling is actually 24-7. You've heard me quote Frederick Buechner a thousand times. Your calling is where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Isaiah notes there is a voice calling out, prepare the way of the Lord. Our challenge is figuring out which single voice out of the billions on this planet is the one calling out to us, which is the one we also need to follow so that our deep gladness and the world's deep need come together. I want you to think about your yesterday, all that you got done and all the stuff you didn't get done. At some point last night, or perhaps early this morning, you laid your head on a pillow to get some sleep. Now, during the time you were sleeping, the only thing that you got done was resting your body, mind, and soul so that you could get up this morning and set about accomplishing your life again. If you want to know what you dreamt about, well, beginning the moment you got out of bed, just take a look at your feet because your feet will tell you where your dreams told you to go. See, occasionally I'll be at Home Depot or Costco or another event and I bump into somebody that we haven't seen for quite a while at church. Most of the time the conversation, at least on their, again, their end, begins with, Pastor, I am so sorry I haven't been in church, and then they fill in the blank as to why. I want you to know that while we do notice when you're not here, we aren't going to chase you down or we're not going to put your face on a milk carton. We're concerned about your relationship with God. We want you to be part of the community of faith, and we believe that that's an important part of your life. But we also know that you will go through times in your life where the valleys and the mountains and the potholes will keep you from gathering with us. We also trust that you will let us know when we can help level the mountains, fill in the valleys and the potholes, and sometimes just walk beside you. Here's where some distinctly Lutheran theology comes into play. See, part of who you are, your reason for existence in the mind of God, is to change this world. That is what the prophet Isaiah is talking about when he says, the Spirit of the Lord has called me to. You were born to take the gospel in various forms to the world. 
you were born with that. I mean, when we say the church is more than something that happens on Sunday morning, well, we mean it. If all we do is speak some liturgy and sing some hymns, this is not a church. It's a social club, and we need to be honest about that. Spiritual gifts, spiritual fruits. The fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5, they apply to all believers. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Every believer is to have the, all of these fruits in their life. Although we understand that some of us have to work harder on some of them and others come a little bit more naturally. You see, we strive to grow in all these areas. Spiritual gifts are a different matter. Depending on which list you follow, there are as few as seven and as many as 25. Here's what Paul was pointing out. All of you are unique and unreproducible. I know, I keep saying that, but it's true. You bring something or several somethings to this church or your family or your community or your job that no one else can because you are you and they aren't you. As you live those gifts out, the world becomes a better place. Lives are impacted. Things change. Now, when someone asks why the church bothers to do stuff, any stuff, because after all, St. Peter says, everything that is, well, is here is going to be destroyed. And us Christians, well, we're just waiting for that new heaven and that new earth. So why would we bother to do anything if we know that everything we do is just going to become nothing? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. See, the only glimpse we have of what is to come, uh, the next life, is Jesus post-resurrection. He shows back up, holds up his hands with the nail holes still in them. We also know that he had the holes in his feet and the hole in his side. Notice the continuity of what was and what is. Jesus' body was glorified. He could walk right through doors and walls. He does it right there in the book of Acts. They were in this sealed room. Next thing you know, he's in the room. Okay? He could zoom off to heaven without a spaceship. And yet he chose to keep the scars of his love. Just because there will be a new heaven and a new earth, no more tears, no more death someday, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't work to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God today, just as the prophet Micah bids us to do. The point of justice and mercy and healing and loving and forgiving and giving isn't because someone deserves it. Whatever we do, it is because God said, this is the way that the world should be, the, the way he designed it to be. And we are called to do those things that anticipate the way God's world will be, even if nobody understands it or accepts it or us as we go about it. God has promised to put the world and us right in the end by getting rid of everything that is corrupted by sin and death. And he's going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth and a new us that can never be touched by sin or death again. The first step in this redemption was a promise. And then God sent his son to die so that everything that was wrong and evil and messed up would die with him. Three days later, when God raised Jesus from the dead, defeating the power of evil and death and Satan through the cross, all the junk, all the sin, all the death, it stayed in the tomb. Now God calls us to participate in both the death and the resurrection of Jesus by taking this redemptive act and declaring it to the rest of the world. We don't know exactly when the final redemption will take place. But until it does, 
God has called us to start chipping away at injustice and pain and sickness and lostness and abuse and hatred right now, wherever we are, whoever we are. I know it's overwhelming. Just if you need to step back, take a deep breath, put the video on pause and just say, God, that's a big one. Sometimes, by the way, when what we are doing seems so small and inconsequential in comparison to the suffering and pain of the world, we do wonder, is it worth it? The best answer is that old adage about the guy throwing the starfish that had washed up on the beach and were now dying because the sun was out. And he goes along and he's throwing one starfish after another back into the water. And somebody comes along and they, they see the hundreds and hundreds of starfish and they know that no matter how fast and hard this guy works, there is no way that he can save all of them. And so they say, why are you bothering? The guy picks up a starfish, flings it into the ocean may not be able to save all of them, but I made a difference for that one. See, during Advent, we talk mostly about preparing for Jesus. If you are new to the faith, you know, we know that he already came about 2,000 years ago. But when he left, he told us that he was coming back. And this time, uh, there's no donkeys, shepherds, wise men, or stables. Instead, every eye will behold him. Every tongue will confess that he is the Savior of the world. And this time when he comes back, he's going to take us to be with him in heaven if we're still alive. And, and if we've died, he, he's going to bring us out of our graves. And, and suddenly, we're all going to be with him and the angels and the archangels and all the company. Now, since it's been a really long time since he was here, he sends people to remind us to station a watch at the door so that when he arrives, it's not really awkward because no one's there to greet him because everybody's asleep. He says, you need to be ready because you never know when I'm going to arrive. And, well, I really love you, and I don't want you to miss out on this. This is the one time of year when much of the world is in alignment with the church, at least on the outside. We light up our homes and bring a tree inside and decorate it, make cookies, and tell everyone Merry Christmas. There are Christmas sales and parties and people knocking on your door asking for a donation if they can sing. And if you want to pay them more, they won't sing. What sets us apart from the malls and Honolulu Hale and some of our neighbors is we are also preparing our hearts and souls, not just for December 25th or 24th, but rather for Jesus. There are extra church services. Christmas Eve, there are going to be candles and hula and chili. Well, maybe not the chili so much as, you know, preparing for Jesus, but I'll tell you how it connects in a little bit. But what does it mean to prepare our hearts and souls for the incarnation? If you've never heard the word incarnation before outside a church, and I know it's one of those words we use only around Christmas time usually, I need you to think of chili con carne. That's chili with meat in it, which is the reason, by the way, that we serve chili on Christmas Eve. You see, the incarnation means God with meat on him, or God with flesh and bone and blood and a mouth and eyes and fingers. And it's not just a costume or a special effect. You see, God spent nine months inside Mary. That should boggle your mind. The God who created the universe, who Solomon says is bigger than the universe, willingly spent nine months in a space just a tiny bit bigger than he was. Why would he do that? 
Our planet is groaning from nations at war over egos, communities plagued by social inequity, religious and political systems are corrupted by power and privilege, bodies and minds are being wasted by disease and neglect, babies and children are being forgotten, the elderly abandoned, and far too many lives wasted trying to obtain a dream that isn't real. Last week, we noted Isaiah was yelling down through the ages to John the baptizer, who was born to be in the demolition and paving business. I mean, he was actually called to flatten mountains, to fill in potholes and valleys, to clear away obstructions and straighten all the roads that had gotten made crooked. And it doesn't hurt to mention the valleys were things that we use to build ourselves up to look down on everybody else. The valleys and shadows are where we hid when we messed up and, and we just couldn't bear it. The potholes were left behind by those who failed before us, and the crooked roads were the product of our swaffling and our indecision. You know, the birds are long gone from the music scene, but their song, which was a top hit, was taken from Ecclesiastes 3. They called it Turn, 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 but here's how Solomon wrote it in the book of Ecclesiastes. There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, time to tear down and a time to build, time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing, time to search and a time to count as lost, time to keep and a time to throw away, time to tear and a time to mend. Time to be silent and a time to speak. Time to love and a time to hate. Time for war and a time for peace. There may be a time for everything under the sun, but our day and age seems to have become just obsessed with the negative parts of this verse and aren't nearly as focused as they should be on the positive, the joyful, the loving, because I guarantee if we stop and look around, we're going to see things that are joyful and hopeful and peaceful. And so John would have us do a little rending and uprooting, tearing down and leveling, along with the hanging up of wreaths and baking cookies and getting all tangled up in the tinsel. And especially, he says, he, especially he would have us put up lights that push back the darkness. Since the rest of the world doesn't look at us quite as strangely as they do the rest of the year when we do our Jesus talk, now is a great time to talk about peace and love and forgiveness and yeah, maybe even a little repentance. The world is a little more open at this time of year for such conversations. Oh, they may not be willing to talk about Lentiny things like suffering and dying and crosses, but we can be patient and lay the foundation for what comes next while we talk right now about all the Adventy things. When you read the first chapters of Luke's Gospel, Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary were a little vocal about what God was doing. I mean, especially Mary. She talked about toppling rulers from their thrones, scattering the proud, lifting up the poor, and uniting the humble. They understood Christmas was a time of peace and love, but that those things always come with a cost. You can't come into the light without leaving the darkness. And the moment you are standing in the light, everyone can see everything about you. There's no way to hide. John the baptizer understood this more than most. When he spoke the truth, it cost him his reputation, his comforts, his freedom, and ultimately his head. The miracle child of Elizabeth and Zechariah was expected to follow in the footsteps of his father and become a temple priest, a position of power and prestige. But John knew that there were other sheep, as Jesus put it, who didn't come to the temple, who were out on the highways and the byways 
and even the rivers. And they were going to need to hear it too. They needed to know that they had a Savior. And so John went out to them. And those whom John preached to and baptized had been praying for a day. When every valley would be filled, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked would be made straight, and all flesh would see the salvation of God. So when he showed up, they knew that was the voice that they'd been waiting for. That was the voice because it fits everything that God had promised them. Prepare the way of the Lord, John told these people. Make his path straight. And there was no misunderstanding. They knew such a blessed event came with a cost. But it was one that God was willing to pay on their behalf. And the only thing that God expected in return was their heart. Repentance is a reorientation to God's priorities. And it doesn't happen overnight or, or even, to be honest, in your whole life. You see, just about, just like we talked about earlier, we know there are far bigger messes than we have the ability to fix, not only in our world, but in our community, and even in our own lives. And yet we do what we can do anyway, because the process of redemption takes place one act, one moment, one confession, one absolution, one Jesus at a time. To make way for the baby Jesus in the manger and the grown-up Jesus coming on the clouds requires listening for God's voice. The voice can be heard in the sanctuaries of stained glass windows, but it is often heard loudest and clearest among the people through whom God is working. Wherever they are working, could be the highways, could be the byways, could be along the rivers, could be in a Costco, a Home Depot, could be in a parking lot, a neighborhood, a living room, or even out in the garage. As they are found in these places, God makes His will known. See, Advent declares that God is on the move. And God is telling us He wants us to join Him. If you want to know where to start, well, that goes back to your existential being, who you are and who God made you to be. As Paul said, if you can teach, well, teach. If you can preach, preach. If you can love, love. If you can encourage, encourage. If you can give, give. If you can hold a hand, give a hug, be a refuge, point the way home, then do it. And while you're at it, grab someone. Take them along with you as you go out to teach and preach and love and forgive and cook and bake cookies and put up lights. You were never made to make this journey alone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.